0: Don't call it a comeback. I'll have hair for years.
1: Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, Grab girl? my glasses, I'm out the door, I'm gonna hit this city. Before I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, Coming back. I'm talking
0: live from the
2: Findlay Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. Only meanwhile, regular people had to wait in their cars for hours. This is the press box it's like they were lined up at a toll booth
1: trying to leave New Jersey during the third quarter of a Jets game. Tyler Bischoff and Adam Candy
2: or Giants game, they're both, uh, both bad at football on ESPN
0: Las Vegas.
1: Ted Grady is out once again. So Adam Candy is filling in and the Golden Knights now face a massive deficit in their quest to win the Stanley Cup. The first bite.
2: Helps have my mic on. Did the Colorado Avalanche embellish their way
1: to a win? Pete DeBoer last night when asked about the slashing call in overtime that was called against Riley Smith that led to the power play goal, DeBoer said just a soft call, but I can't even blame the refs. They're fighting through the embellishment of grabbing your face or falling down or dropping your stick every period. I can't even blame the ref. They fool them on it. So Adam, did the avalanche win game two by fooling the referees?
0: I was very impressed actually at the way that Gabriel Landeskog in the third period made himself bleed from the nose after Patrick Brown cross checked him during a face off. That was some serious embellishment. I mean, if you're going to do the bit commit to the bit and obviously the avalanche are in for it. I mean, (laughs) If you're Pete DeBoer, look at how game 1 went and look at how game 2 went. In game 1, you tried the fake tough guy stuff and to see if you could bait them into penalties. Now after game 2, you're left complaining about penalties. So you're clearly on the tack of we are the inferior team and these are the things that we can complain about.
1: But they they played well last night though. Like last night you watched the game and you don't like you don't walk away from game 2 thinking the golden Knights can't compete with the avalanche like you did from game one. So that was kind of the strange part to me was the, I don't know. I mean, I guess you're doing it to try to get a favorable call in the next games, but it was strange to me that that was sort of the takeaway when the golden Knights played pretty well. Like they probably win that game more often than not, but they didn't last night and it was all about the referees and embellishment. And that was the reason they lost apparently.
0: But that's what I'm saying. Like, if, if that's the way you feel, that your team played well enough to win, and yeah, we heard the deserve line from <laughs> Pete DeBoer again, but th- then don't get into it with complaining about the call because that, my point in talking about Brown and Landis Scott from the third period is you could have been in a lot worse situation than you were. And that play in overtime, let's talk about it for a second because that's clearly a set play off the faceoff. Riley Smith is trying to clear room for Marcia so to come into the slot. And so you know that if that play is going to create an opportunity for the Golden Knights to score, that's the kind of thing they're going to call in overtime. If it creates the scoring opportunity, they're going to call it. So even if it looks a little bit softer than what you might see out in the neutral zone in the middle of the second period, you've got to be smarter than that.
1: But the other part about embellishment is that in order to embellish something, something has to exist already. So, like, that call is a good example where, sure, maybe it looks soft, but Riley Smith did slash the stick of Miko Rantanen, like he did take his stick and smack Miko Rantanen's stick. There was another call earlier in the game where Kale McCarr drew a holding penalty on Max Pacioretty, where Kale McCarr more than likely took his arm and held Max Pacioretty's arm to his body to get the call. But again, Max Pacioretty's arm was in a spot where he could get called for a penalty, so the, the idea of embellishment means something was already there. Like the Golden Knights put themselves in a position where a call could be made. Is it made all the time? No, it's hockey. We see lots of things missed plenty of times, but they put themselves in that position. And then the other part on this, that, that always bothers me when people complain about like embellishment or play, because this happens in all sports where, players will try to fool the rest where players will act like something was a bigger deal than it actually was. And in a lot of sports, it's sort of viewed as part of the game, not in hockey, but the the thing that I find most entertaining is that Pete DeBoer in his mind, identified that the golden Knights were embellishing these calls. He identified that this was giving them, or excuse me, the avalanche were embellishing these calls. And he identified that it was giving the avalanche an advantage because these referees could be fooled. Why wouldn't you have your players do the same thing? Like, if you've identified there's an advantage to be had and the other team's exploiting it, why wouldn't you have your players doing the same thing over the course of the game if it's that big of an advantage, if it's that big of a deal that these calls are being embellished and that's why you lost the game? That's ultimately poor coaching. Like, if you identify an advantage being had, then you should be exploiting that, and if that's truly why they lost, then they should have been exploiting it too so they could have gotten more power plays.
0: Well, I don't know that I can necessarily blame Pizza Zabor in that regard, though, because just think about Joe Pavelski right? Joe Pavelski back in the uh, series when Cody Eakin got the not a major, did he embellish things? It, he might have just embellished him just a little bit, right? Got the major, got the four goals. He was, bleeding, knows how out coach his, embellishment. He was bleeding out of his helmet. Oh, stop it. He was bleeding out of his helmet. Just the there same was... way Gabriel Landeskog was bleeding from his nose last night, right? Come well, on.
1: Landeskog should have stayed down longer. If he was truly embellishing, Landeskog would have laid on the ice for like 35 minutes.
0: I think that when we talk about embellishment, we're talking about something that is not the story of what actually happened in that game. Look, the Golden Knights generated some awesome scoring chances throughout that game they played as good of a game as you can play and as you said if you go out there and play that game more times than not you're going to win in fact that's the story here the golden knights have to play that game again in order to have a shot at winning because of a couple of reasons first of all the team defense of the avalanche is pretty outstanding second of all the top line I know they tried to make it out on the broadcast as though that line didn't have the same uh production that it did in game one they are special and they are something that the golden knights generally do not have an answer for and you saw it in overtime on that power play with that line on the ice that is one of the most dangerous things i've ever seen in hockey so talk about embellishment all you want. See if you can buy yourself a call in game three because when you talk like that, you're basically saying we need help in order to win. So the thing that I took away before Pete DePore went on about embellishment
1: was the same story we've seen before for the Golden Knights where they outshot Colorado 41 to 25 last night. That's by the way, the only the fourth time this entire season that the Avalanche were outshot by 10 or more in a game. And that's been the problem we've seen over the last two postseasons, is the Golden Knights will have these games where they look, you know, dominant offensively, where they are clearly the better team, but they get in some ridiculous offensive drought. They generate a ton of shots, they generate a ton of chances, but they do not score. And you look at it like Mark Stone has two points in his last five games. Max Pacioretty, going back to last season, has one goal in his last 13 playoff games. The defensemen on this team that are supposed to help create offense, Shay Theodore and Alex Petrangelo. Zero combined goals in the playoffs this year. Like DeBoer did mention in that press conference at one point, they did need to bury their chances. But that to me, like it's the same story we've seen. Now Colorado is better than Vegas, whereas usually the Golden Knights are playing teams that are worse than them, and we're looking at it saying, "Wow, how the hell they managed to lose games to Vancouver?" Like, but Colorado is actually better. But that to me was the big takeaway: is it's sort of this recurring issue for the Golden Knights where they'll have great games, they'll have great periods, and they walk away with it with nothing to show for it. And it's like, yeah, that's how you end up losing these games because they simply can't finish.
0: I don't know that this is the same though. I don't know that this game felt like the games against Dallas, the games against Vancouver over the last couple of years, like those games felt like the other side had absolutely no chance and was just waiting for its opportunity to spring. And the Colorado Avalanche are a team that is far, far more dangerous than that. So I'm actually more impressed by what the Golden Knights did last night. There were times that the Golden Knights looked like by far the better team during that game, and that is an enormous credit to what they were able to accomplish, and the game came down to making a dumb choice in overtime, slashing the stick out of Rantman's hand on a play that's going to lead to a scoring chance. Trust me, as an official, in that type of situation, The only things you're looking for you're looking for things that can change the game to call because there were plenty of other calls where guys got tripped openly like in the third period tripped in the middle of the ice the fans were screaming it doesn't mean anything because it's in the middle of the ice nobody cares but a play like that yes everybody sees that it leads to a scoring chance and so that's the difference in the game, right? The difference in the game is that Colorado ends up on the power play because otherwise, I gotta tell you, Tyler, the way that that game was going, I really do believe the Golden Knights would ultimately have won it.
1: Yeah, I, I think they would have too. I mean, they they were. I mean, it's it's the sport of hockey, so you know, Mark Andre Fleury might have ended up with a puck in the back of his shorts and he backed it in for the game winning goal. That could have happened too, but more than likely, I think the Golden Knights win that game if Riley Smith doesn't take that penalty. The one other thing from that game that I think is interesting. And it's, it's again, to me, a trend that I think we've seen since Pete DeBoer's taken over the golden Knights had 16 more shots on goal in that game, but the Colorado avalanche actually had more expected goals last night because the avalanche had more high danger chances. The avalanche had more scoring chances than the golden Knights did last night. Now, some of that's because they had three more power plays than the golden Knights, but Something that's happened since DeBoer has taken over, and he did it at the end of his time in San Jose when he had Brent Byrne and Eric Carlson, his offensive game plan when they get set up in the offensive zone, they want their defensemen to launch shots from the point. And what it leads to is a lot of uh, high volume, low efficiency, low percentage shots from the point because you're not often scoring from the point, but... You can create rebounds. You can create chaos when you do that. But ultimately, that's a lot of the times. And, and last night I thought was a good example where the Golden Knights will have a massive advantage in shots, but they're not always high danger shots. They're not always good quality shots or good quality chances. It's more about quantity than quality for the Golden Knights offensive game plan. And for the Avalanche last night, it was way more about quality than quantity. And that, to me, I think is it's another thing we've seen from DeBoer, where the offense tends to flow through, hey, let the defensemen launch from the points. And they've got good defensemen, we think, to do it. We haven't seen it, to do it. But it's something that you're not creating the highest value shots when you do that, like the avalanche were last night, where even though they only had 26 shots, they still had a load of scoring chances.
0: In general, I agree with you. Against the Avalanche, I can't say I mind it quite as much because if he, if the game plan involves let's get the puck in the zone and try to keep the puck in the zone, right? If we want to play this chip and chase, try to cycle it down low and find some opportunities kind of game, then I don't mind it as much because the last thing you want to do is get into an up and down with the Colorado Avalanche. If you let them play a game where it's rushed this way and rushed that way, eventually Colorado is going to beat you but the difference tyler i think for the golden knights is if you're going to play that game where you're looking for shots from the point then you're playing for rebounds you're playing for jamming it down low who's the golden knight who's getting in front of the net and really making things dirty right who's the guy who's in there risking a goaltender interference or shoving somebody around or trying to get onto those rebounds I haven't seen a lot of that out of the Golden Knights through these two games so I'm not saying they can't do it it just that has to be the extension of that game plan the, the extension of the game plan is we're trying to score goals in close off rebounds because we know that if we take these point shots it's probably the best chance we have of getting the puck through as opposed to trying to pass one direction across the ice to the other where we know from watching the Minnesota Wild that that's not going to work very well.
1: So they need Ryan Reeves back to just shove people around in front of the net?
0: Well, shove people around and be able to score.
1: (laughs) Is that important? I'm not
0: sure that qualifies.
1: (laughs) What if he shoves people around and somebody else comes in and scores?
0: Sure, we can we can try that. Uh, I'm not sure who that player is going to be for the Golden Knights, unless you'd like to see like a Stone patch Reeves yes. line.
1: Yes. Oh, who wouldn't? Oh Why wouldn't you want to see that? That'd be phenomenal. Let Ryan yeah, Reeves th- take the face three wingers, no
0: three wingers, yeah. no centerman.
1: Let Reeves take the face It'll be phenomenal. He'll just it, he won't even go for the puck. We know that he'll just pull the other guy's hair and they'll win the face-off and it'll be great.
0: In my favorite part, by the way, of that broadcast last night was that you never really hear the analysts turn on the players, but. Yeah and i'm going to call it turning on the players but they called out mark stone pretty clearly on that broadcast last night and basically said he has not been the player that the golden knights need and i thought to myself well one of two things one uh, you know they are noticing the same thing that tyler bischoff has been talking about for a long time so thank you for being loyal press box listeners uh or it's become really glaring
1: yeah, I mean, it is. He's not that anybody thinks he's as good as Nathan McKinnon, but he's supposed to be the guy that at least gives the Golden Knights a chance to neutralize Nathan McKinnon, at least gives them a chance to say, okay, you have your star, we have our star, it's going to come down to the rest of the roster, and that's that hasn't been the case. Nathan McKinnon looks so much better than Mark Stone, even last night when it's not, you know, the their first line scores four goals in the game. It's still, oh, yeah, Nathan McKinnon's still better than anybody else on the A's. All right, coming up next, we will get into the NBA because the Dallas Mavericks are on the precipice of eliminating Kawhi Leonard and Paul Jordan And here's that standing ovation and applause I was
0: talking about. And the Hawks take the series in five, winning two of the games here at the Garden. Atlanta's first playoff series win since the first round in 2016 for Nate McDonough's first playoff win since 2005 back in his days
3: at Seattle. Thanks to our producer Tom Heights, our director Andrew Greathouse, and our statistician Brian Taylor. Coming up, it's the Mavericks and the Clippers in game five for Reggie Miller and the rest of the
0: TNT crew, Marv Albert saying good night. You've been watching the NBA playoffs on TNT.
1: The death of the season. We'll get more into the Hawks and Knicks in the eight o'clock hour. But the Clippers are now on the verge of elimination. Both LA teams down 3 to 2 in their series because Luka Doncic scored 42 points last night. Wasn't all that efficient, 17 of 37 shooting. Uh, but he did score or assist on 31 of Dallas's 38 made shots last night. But, Adam, my favorite part of any Mavericks game is turning it on and being um, delighted to see Bobon in the game because nobody makes me laugh more. Than Bobon being like seven foot seven, making NBA players look tiny. And he's good for at least like two plays a quarter where he's just taller than everybody else, doesn't have to jump, and will dunk it while nobody else can do anything about it.
0: Not only did you get Bobon last night, you got starter Boban.
1: Yes. Bobon
0: was actually one of the first five out.
1: <laughs> I didn't know he was starting and I didn't see the very start of the game. I turned to it like a minute or two later into the game and I'm like, ooh. Boban's in, and I was hooked. I love Bob. I it's it's no doubt like one of my most delightful things I've ever I ever tune into because I'm never really expecting Boban. It's never like oh yeah I'm tuning in to see Boban because he doesn't play 30 minutes a night. But when you see him, it's delightful. It's wonderful. I don't. I still haven't quite figured out how you can't just throw it up high to him every time and get a free dunk. Like I know he's not the most athletic specimen, but I still feel like that's cheat code you could actually exploit and never lose. But anyways, delighted every time I see him.
0: By the way, did you just say not the most athletic specimen? Yeah, you know, for 7'6", he's, he's pretty athletic, but he's like a
1: standing manatee. He's better than most 7'6 people.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were familiar with a lot of 7'6 people, but okay, yeah, I see where you're going with this.
1: Most of them can't walk. Most of them are in his family. Tyler's tall. Oh, I thought you meant Bobon's family. I was going to say, does Bobon have? He has to have a tall family, right? Oh, okay. So there's like a, a, a tangent of the Bo, Bobon family that's just like from Mississippi. What?
0: Come for the Bobon. <laughs> stay for the Luca. Because thank you, the, stat, the stat you have here about Luca scoring or assisting on 31 of 38 made shots is one of the more ridiculous things I've ever seen.
1: Yeah. Like he, like it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd that the the Dallas Mavericks only made seven shots last night that either Luca did not make, or Luca did not pass directly to the person that made it. That's, that's absurd. For like, as much as we saw the blazers and how much everybody sucked around Damian Lillard to close that game out. And Damian Lillard had like a ridiculous, like he was, involved in like 80 points in that game between his points and assist it still wasn't like the Blazers only made seven shots that didn't involve Damian Lillard the rest of the game
0: no no it certainly wasn't and and Tyler it's 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 so hard to watch this Clippers team and to know how talented it it is and how good it could be and then just watch them sort of shrug their way <laughs> through games Right, like they, there are times that this Clippers team just looks like it doesn't want to be there anymore, and I could get that if it were a team that had won three championships already. But this was the idea of building a super team to combat the Lakers, to combat you know the idea of what LeBron had built in Miami. Like I, I just don't see what this Clippers team has to be complacent about, and yet that's exactly how
1: they look. Uh, here's a stat from David Berman at ESPN. The Clippers are the only team in the last 30 years to lose five straight playoff games when favored by at least seven points.
0: All right. I I do like the stat. I will say that the health of Luka factored quite a bit into that line considering the Mavs won the first two games of this series in L.A. But that being said, even a team with a healthy Luka Uh, The Clippers should win this series. The Clippers should have won this series in five games, but they're not going to quite obviously. In fact, they're going to be lucky to get out of the series. And uh, look, I I am all for getting to try to choose the matchup you want in the playoffs. However, (laughs) this particular Clippers team, if there were any team in sports in which I would say, be careful tanking your way into something. Be careful becoming okay with losing. It's this Clippers team because we've seen the way that they can fall apart. And Ty Lue gave them an excuse.
1: Well, it's it's so bizarre to me because you have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Like You should have a, a duo that's good enough to get you to the Western Conference Finals, to the NBA Finals, and win it. And yet... They did it last year in the second round, and they're doing it right now where it's just uh, they completely fall apart. And like you said, they look, I don't know, uninterested. Like, they, their will is killed. Like, the last two possessions of that game, the Mavericks have a chance to win it or tie it. And Terrence Mann ends up with, like, a he had a layup attempt, and he, he passed out for some reason. And then the last possession for the Clippers, they run a play for Kawhi to get a corner three. It's not really open. There's still, like, nine seconds left, and he just... Kind of hoists it up and airballs it, and it was like, what? What was that? Like, Kawhi had nine more seconds to do something, something else to get a better shot, and it was just sort of a half-hearted heave at the rim that didn't even hit the rim.
0: Do you know how bad something has to be in terms of a shot in basketball for Rajon Rondo to <laughs> look at you after the shot and say, "What were you doing?" Like, this guy has been hoisting shot puts for years and he's the one to come over to Kawhi and give him the look like man what are you doing so that's how bad that shot was by Kawhi
1: yeah and the other part of that because not that I love to get into the whole leadership thing but like Rondo got traded to the Clippers in the middle of the season and Rondo's the one at the end of that game being like what in the hell just happened like how is Rondo the one that's out here like Kawhi what the hell are you doing like it's so bizarre to me what this team is doing because They should be a title contender, and if they don't win the next two games, they're out in the first round, and they don't even, like, the Lakers have an excuse if they're not healthy. What in the hell is the Clippers' excuse?
0: Well, isn't that the perfect symptom of what's wrong with the Clippers, though? Because... You bring in Rondo, the idea of this experienced hand to guide the team as a point guard in the playoffs because Patrick Beverly, unfortunately, my guy Pat Bev has fallen off and this team doesn't have a real point guard to get them into better looks to get them into better sets to make sure Kawhi isn't thinking if I give this ball up, nobody else can make a shot. And so I bet I'm better off just hoisting up a contested three from the corner than I am handing the ball off to anybody else that Ty Lewis chosen to throw out there. So I Perfect to me that Jean Rondo ends up being the one because they brought him in to try to fix a problem that is going to take a much greater fixing.
1: All right, coming up next, David Roth joins the show.
0: We're happy to talk to him. He just seems happy to talk to anyone. David Roth from The Defector is with us on the press box. Subscribe to The Distraction
2: on Stitcher and use the promo code DISTRACT for a free month of Stitcher Premium.
1: All right, David, when you turn on a basketball game and you see Boban is playing, what is your reaction to Boban in the post?
2: Like childish delight, Thank like you. clapping my hands <laughs> like a little child <laughs> that's just been given the lolly, if I'm being honest. It's the same for I, me. It's the exact same. It's just same. not like watching other basketball. I love it so much. I was really happy to see him out there yesterday.
1: Like I, I can't quite figure out how he's not a cheat code that you just throw it really high and he dunks it.
2: It's. I mean, he kind of is. It's just like he seems to prefer like tossing in little baby hooks and stuff, which is again another thing about him. Like he doesn't seem to mind dunking, but it seems like in his heart he kind of just he wants to be doing like weird push shots and like. You know, bits of business with drop steps and stuff, and I can totally relate to that. Like, if I was good at one thing, but it was, like, the thing that everyone expected me to be good at, I would try to get good at some other less useful thing, too.
1: He's got to show off his actual skill. He doesn't want to just be known as, oh, I'm big, and that's why you're good. He's got to show off that he's actually got basketball skill.
2: And he's kind of a good player. I mean, that's, like, the thing that I remember the first encounter I had with him was, like, some highlight from the G League years ago. And it was, like, a no-look pass. Like, maybe he threw it over his head or something to a shooter in the corner. And it was, like, it looked, as you said, like, it looked like a video game. Like, first of all, he's, like, 50% bigger than the 7-foot guy that's guarding him somehow. And so, he, it was great. And I was, like, this guy actually, like, he's not the future of basketball. But, like, if you use him right, like, the way that the Mavs used him yesterday, like, he's extremely useful. It's just, like, I worry about his like, his arches falling or, like, him getting tired or something. Like, i am very protective of the guy.
0: If you were to go down to the Y and Boban was playing in a game and you were next, what would you think? Like, would you want to go against Boban? Would you want to guard Boban? Or would you just look at that and be like, yeah, I'm good, you guys stick next?
2: So this is the part of it where it's important to know that I'm an idiot because, like, my <laughs> every time I've been in a pickup situation like this, which is not – I've never played against anybody that big – but in games where I've been playing and there's one guy that's like obviously very good, I like to try to, and this is years ago, I, mean, I haven't played in the pickup game in a minute, but I like to try to have one defensive possession just to see how bad it's going to get. <laughs> you know, like, if there's, like a guy doing like and one dribble moves, I'm like, no, let me let me try this. Like, and it doesn't ever go well, but it's like something kind of funny. Uh, and also, like, I think it's, a, you know, sort of as, a, as an emotional heat check. The idea of trying to like front Bobon in the post, I think, would do me like a lot of good. Just in terms of like, you know, realizing what it's like to be alive in a world uh, where you don't have that much agency. I think that that's that's probably about as healthy a version of it as you could get.
0: I love the concept.
1: David, do you slap the floor during pickup basketball games on defense?
2: I used to do it to annoy my friends. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are University of Maryland fans. And uh, it turns out it works on them. Like, they're just conditioned. Like, once you've seen Wojo do it enough times, it doesn't matter if it's, like, somebody who you were, like, in their wedding. Like, if I do that, and then I'm instantly their enemy. I'm just Paulus suddenly.
1: Okay. So, childish delight when watching Boban. Is it the exact opposite emotion when watching the Clippers lose a game in the final minute?
2: What is the matter with them? It's really weird, right? Like, they, they actually, like, as bad as they looked those first two games, which was extremely bad, and, like, like, not just in terms of missing shots and stuff, but, I mean, just, like, kind of, like, smirking and not trying, like, body language, like, what everything that could be, like, short of, like, lying fully prone on the floor, they were doing everything wrong. I didn't think they looked, I mean, like, George and, and Leonard have at least looked good the last couple of games, but, like, they absolutely seemed like they could lose that series to, like, Doncic, and then like Boban being the second most effective and impactful player on the floor. I don't know, I, like, and I can't exactly say that it's like that they're they're being coached badly. I think that there's like the bench is a little uh, scant on talent uh, relative to what it was, you know, like last year even. But there's something really off there. Like as somebody that I adopted the Clippers when I went to school in Los Angeles. Uh, because I'm an idiot again, just to underline that point. Uh, those are really bad Clippers teams. That was like Tyrone Nesby and Maurice Taylor and Lamar Odom and stuff. Uh, the the energy coming off of this team feels like the same sort of like just punching a clock, you know, and not really expecting to to do too terribly much with it. And that's crazy because talent wise, the team should, you know, make the Western Conference Finals. I'm not right. even sure they're going to get out of the series, to be honest.
0: Thank you, by the way, for the UNLV shout-out on Tyrone Nesby. Way to know your audience. That was really uh, yeah, well done. Yeah,
2: pandering to uh, yes. people. I, I love Nesby. He was like, that was one of the, uh, the guys that I was able to talk myself into because they were like the, one of the three players on the team that tried hard. You know, like the, the alternative is like Lamont Murray actively smoking a cigarette on defense. You're like, wow, that Nesby really got something.
0: Um, so... What is the bigger Southern California disappointment? Whatever in the hell the Clippers are doing right now or whatever in the hell Artie Moreno has paper macheed around Mike Trout for the last nearly a decade?
2: God, it's grim, right? I mean, that's what's weird about that is that, like, if you were to just go down the Angels roster as somebody that was a casual baseball fan, I mean, it's different now I mean, that Pools has gone, but, like, if you started the year, it's just like, well, Anthony Rendon, like, that was an MVP recently. Like, Mike Trout, like, that is the MVP every single year, like, whether he gets the award or not. And then it's like they didn't exactly miss on every player development thing, but there's just massive, massive holes. And the guys that fall off there, I mean, like, I wouldn't have predicted that Justin Upton would be just, like, an absolute zero as he's been, but... I mean, it's just again, it's a, it's a vibe thing. I think that like, I wrote about them for the Baseball Prospectus annual this year. Um, they like to give me like a depressing team every year. I think it's kind of a bit. <laughs> I'm like in on it now, you know. I'm like, oh, the Rockies, you guys are hilarious. Thank you so much. <laughs> and <laughs> this is the second time I've written about the Angels in like six years, <laughs> which it like says a lot about about them and also about the sadism of the editors of the Baseball Prospectus annual but it does seem like this year as I was writing it, like it really felt more like a Moreno thing than like anything to do with like the baseball operation side of things. Like they've missed on some stuff and they've hit on some stuff, but there's something that only an owner can do to a, an organization where there's just like, you know, like weird uh, culture stuff, like playing favorites and like uh, weird mismanaging of injuries. That was a favorite one with the Mets for a long time. And there's something about the angels that just isn't cooking right. And I, I don't know how you can fix it if it's all coming from the one guy you can't fire.
1: Do you think baseball perspectives will have you write just about Francisco Lindor next year?
2: I feel like they've been, like, holding the Mets. Like, <laughs> if this year, if something really disappointing happens with the Mets this year, like, if they get to the, the, whatever, they make the wild card, and then everyone on the team gets, like, mumps and they have to forfeit, that's when I get the essay. <laughs> but Lindor, like, this is... Gonna sound stupid because he's Lindor's like his OPS still starts with a six like it's not what you want like he just got he's like at two oh nine I believe on the season now after a three hit day yesterday and a two hit day the day before but it's starting to look a little bit more like him it's just I think also some of that is that the rest of the Mets lineup right now is just entirely AAA guys so like Lindor at least having like a you know professional grade rich athlete guy haircut you're like yes he's who's that <laughs> even if he's hitting two ten.
0: Uh, D- David, what is Jacob Degrom? <laughs>
2: it's like a all-devouring uh, deity <laughs> and vengeful demigod. I honestly have never seen a pitcher like him. The fact that he comes back every year and he's throwing two miles an hour harder and better than he has like the season he's having this year. Like the historical comp, I guess, is Bob Gibson this season before they lowered the mound. Like it's just the fact that he's doing it with the Mets and so he's going to somehow finish the season with like a nine and seven record, despite being the best pitcher anyone's ever seen. Like that's a little, that's just for me to enjoy as a, as a Mets fan. But the, the other stuff, like, I mean, do you, can you think of a pitcher that you've seen that pitched the way he does, like not even at the, the velocity or anything like that, but like just that it's improved at this pace at this point in their career?
0: No, and, and especially not with the velocity. I mean, the, the only guy who I remember watching, in you know, in my era growing up and thinking, "Oh no, you have absolutely no chance," was Peak Pedro. Um, yeah, and, and it's it's a totally different type of pitching.
2: Yeah, Pedro and Pedro too is the one that we're like that's like some of the scouty people that I've talked about. It's like a rule that you don't ever compare anyone to Pedro because it's like you're always going to be wrong, and also it's <laughs> it's like it's unfair. But yeah, it's similar, and I think with Pedro too, there was like. I mean, he just like refined the like the stuff that he had, and then like the craft itself, that to like such a high level. Like the the Red Sox version of him is the I think still the coolest pitcher that I've ever seen. But it's similar, I think, in the sense like Degrom's like got the long levers and everything like that. It still doesn't make sense to me that someone that looks like that is throwing 101 miles an hour in like the sixth inning of a game. Like Pedro was like a, a short dude, but it wasn't. He wasn't like overpowering people with the way that DeGrom is, even though he just kind of looks like all major league pitchers look now, which is like, you know, six foot three, born in Florida, like sometimes a questionable haircut. He just throws <laughs> five miles harder than any of them.
1: How many innings would it take the Mets lineup to score a run off of
2: Jacob DeGrom? It's, um, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm not that good at like, uh, advanced or like applied <laughs> mathematics. It would involve scientific notation. So it's some number times 10 to some power. Uh, I don't know, but like the lineup as it is right now, like when is Brandon Drury or like Jose Peraza going to square one of those 94 mile an hour sliders up? I think that uh, the sun will have gone out.
3: <laughs>
1: well, he is David Roth from The Defector. David, as always, we appreciate it.
2: Thanks, guys. Have a good day.
1: Oh, The poor Mets. How are they in first, by the way? Like, I feel like that's the Seattle Mariners offense, but they're in first place in the division.
0: There's really nobody left there. They're, they're all hurt. And, and yet that division has underperformed so badly around them that you're there.
1: Are they still wait? It, it, this is like three weeks ago. Was is it still like the Marlins are the only team with a positive run differential?
0: I have not looked at that recently. I just know that the Mets have played so many fewer games than everybody else that they're ahead on winning percentage.
1: <laughs> okay, so here you go. Uh, In last place, the Nationals are minus 19 in second to last. The Marlins are plus five in third. The Braves are minus seven in second. The Phillies are minus 19. And in first, the Mets are positive plus six. So Mets Mets and Marlins are the only two in that division. And they're plus six and plus five combined. What a division.
0: Meanwhile, in the AL East, there are going to be, like, four teams that should make the playoffs and two that do.
1: Yeah. Actually, the favorite run differential division is the NL West because you have Giants at plus 62, Padres at plus 75, Dodgers at plus 83, Rockies at minus 39, Diamondbacks at minus 53. Like, you might have the three best teams in the National League and, like, the two worst teams. Well, the Pirates, but two of the three worst teams in the National League in the same division.
0: How did the Diamondbacks manage to fall below the Rockies? It's That's impressive. against the rules. It's
1: impressive. It really they're They're two and a half behind the Rockies, too. It's not like, oh, they fell a half game behind. They need to, like, sweep somebody to get back ahead of them. It's impressive. All right. Coming up next, the Raiders. Oh, is the offense going to be better than it was last
0: season? Is Tyler a know-it-all? Can you prove him wrong? Tweet at Bischoff underscore Tyler and at Ed Graney.
3: Yes, I believe so. Uh, I believe that, you know, the, with especially just looking at first at uh, Henry and Brian and them taking the steps to, toward being the players that we all know that they can be um, two very talented young guys that, you know, just need to continue to grind and continue to be on their processes in order to... Really see the success that they want to see. Um, I feel like the offensive line uh, is really going to be good this year. Uh, I know that you know a lot of guys have shifted, but you know just seeing how Andre James is taking control of the room and Colton, uh, and how those guys are setting a high standard. And uh, you know with Denzel being here, Richie, you know leading the way, going into year 17, I believe. So I really believe in the offensive line and what they're building. And uh, yeah, I believe that you know we get. Foster really comes into his own and shows who, who, us who he can be. And you got guys like John Brown, Willie, uh, you get Kenyon out there who's going to be incredibly explosive. So I, I like what we have this year.
1: That was Darren Waller when asked about the offense being better this season. Uh, by the way, we are going to give away later in the show a Golden Knights hat, a two foot sub to Porta subs, and. You'll be qualified to win a pair of tickets to game four against the Colorado Avalanche on Sunday. So stay tuned for that. That is coming up later on. But back on the Raiders, you hear Darren Waller talking about the offense. Of course, Darren Waller is going to say that he thinks the offense can be better than it would be last season. But, Adam, what what should our expectations be? They They revamped the offensive line. Nelson Aguilar's gone. But Kenyon Drake's here. Like, Is the expectation the offense is going to be about the same, a little worse, a little better? Like, what should we think the offense will be this year?
0: We have to start from the idea that this offense actually was pretty good last year. Um, Overall, this offense produced at a level that with a defense made of something other than cardboard and duct tape (laughs) might have had a shot at the playoffs. (laughs) And so, you know, pro football focus ranked 13th overall, but ranked ninth by the pass, which is ultimately why a team is going to be successful on offense in 2021 or not. And so you look at everything Darren Waller just mentioned, right? There have been some weapons added that if they perform to the level that uh, that you hope, or if you look at Ruggs and Edwards and say, do they take the necessary steps forward? Then, yeah, you see where there is essentially going to be a weapon at every spot on the field for the Raiders. But of course, a lot of that comes back to does this offensive line explosion, implosion, whatever you want to call it, that Gruden and Mayock executed work out. Um, I love the idea of hearing that Andre James is taking control of the room. I see the reality that he played in one game last year. So, you know, if you take the guy who's supposed to be the one making the blocking calls on the offensive line, tell me, okay, we're going to blow up the center position. We're going to blow up the right tackle position and we are going to hope that some of our young guys make it then I think that's where you really have to ask questions about this offense because I, I think this offense can be the reason this team makes the playoffs the problem is I absolutely think this defense can be the reason this team doesn't make the playoffs again
1: yeah the, the two main areas to watch on offense is did their gamble on the offensive line pay off like do they have a competent offensive line next year and do, who's the who's the wide receivers like they lose Aguilar who was a surprise last year is it rugs like does Henry Ruggs have a good season is it John Brown or like Willie Sneed they brought in two veterans who've had decent careers that could conceivably be the next Nelson Aguilar like who in that receiver group actually steps up those are the two main things that I'm curious to see because like last year I mean you said 13th They were somewhere between like eight nine ten to 13 or so in most sort of important offensive ranking or offensive categories last year. So it was a good offense, but certainly not by any means a great offense. I have a hard time seeing them be like a great offense, a top six offense in the NFL next year. If the offensive line, like how bad do you think the offensive line can be? Like Colton Miller should be fine. Richie Incognito should be fine. But like Andre James, Denzel Good, Alex Littlewood, like there's, there's a chance the center to right side of the line is, is really bad next year.
0: Absolutely, there is. And your worst case scenario looks a lot like last year, where Richie Incognito is not healthy enough to get on the field, where Andre James does not work out as the replacement for a guy who was probably the most reliable center in football over the course of the last half decade, and where Alex Leatherwood looks like a guard who you drafted to play tackle. Um, so, you know, when, when it comes to Colton Miller, yeah, it's the one spot on the line that, that I'm not nearly as worried about. Um, and great that it's at left tackle. But at the same time, this this line could blow up everything. And, and to another point that you made there that I think is, you have to extrapolate a little bit. Can the Raiders be better on offense? They can only be so much better so long as John Gruden wants this to be ground-and-pound Mike Allstott football. right? If they're going to continue to see this as run to set up the pass, then there is absolutely a ceiling on what this Raiders offense can do.
1: Well, they brought in Kenyon Drake, so...
0: Well, he's the joker. <laughs> He's the Joker. You know that, right? He's the Joker. He can play any position on the field.
1: Listen, it's gonna be what's gonna be funnier if Kenyon Drake actually is the Joker and has like um, an all-purpose where he averages like six carries, six catches a game, and like scores a lot of touchdowns, or if they never throw to him and he only is there as a backup running back to Josh Jacobs.
0: Ooh, both could be hilarious. I, I think the real question is this: Who's the other Joker in the NFL that you look at right now? Who Who's the comp? Like I, for what they want Kenyon Drake to be.
1: Well, I, I I feel like with Kenyon Drake specifically, they're trying to get Alvin Kamara.
0: Have you ever seen the kind of shiftiness out of Kenyon Drake that Alvin Kamara possesses? Because it's pretty rare. Yeah. So uh, the other question that I have when it comes to this is, if Kenyon Drake could do this, why is John Gruden the first one to figure it out?
1: John Gruden's smarter than everybody, Adam.
0: I know that. I know that. He he reminds us at every opportunity.
1: That's yeah. why he's the head coach of the Raiders. It's because he knows what everybody else doesn't. It's not like no, no, no. Kenyon Drake is black on for, wood if you're with Two me. other
0: teams. That's not why no, no. That's not why he's the head coach of the Raiders. That's why he's the supreme leader ah, of yes. the Raiders.
1: Yes. That is a fair point. That is why they continue to draft guys in the first round that are projected for the second or sometimes even third round. It's because John Gruden knows better than everybody else. It's just it's a fact. We've seen this play out over the last few years. There's no denying it whatsoever that John Gruden knows what he's doing but yeah the offense will be fine it'll be Jonathan Abrams fault more than likely